This is a podcast about new crops. You're going to love it. Join us on The Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. So I will say if you ever get back into the COVID world and you got to wear these masks all the time, just take a drop of spearmint or peppermint oil and that'll freshen your mask up and it'll make your day go a lot better. So... Welcome to another episode of the Cutting Edge Podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. My name is Jordan Schuler, and I'm the Regional Crop Educator with UW-Madison Division of Extension and the newest member of the Emerging Crops team here at UW. Today's episode will be all about mint production. This is actually our first episode on mint production, and we have four people joining us here today with a lot of expertise in mint production and management. Joining us, we have Dr. Petrus Langenhoven who is a horticulture and hydroponics crop specialist at Purdue University with an expertise in vegetable and peppermint production, as well as new crop development. We also have with us Dr. Stephen Myers, who is an assistant professor with the Department of Horticulture and Landscape Architecture at Purdue University, uh, where he conducts research in weed biology, weed crop interactions, and integrated weed management strategies, um, and provides Indiana's specialty crop producers with research-based weed management recommendations. Um, we also have Dr. Elizabeth Long with us, who is a professor of entomology at Purdue um, and has done research on various mint pests. Um, and we will also be hearing from Doug Mathis, who is an experienced mint producer at Shady Lane Farms in Indiana. Um, and he will be sharing his expertise and knowledge about mint production and market outlooks. So I'm going to let them introduce themselves and give them a little background on their research and experience with mint. Petrus, would you like to go first? Yes, thank you, Jordan. Thank you for the invitation to be part of this podcast. Uh, yeah, I uh, started to work on mint uh, in Indiana in 2015. Uh, it was pretty interesting. I uh, had to uh, um, help a colleague of ours here, Stephen Weller. He's been a, a long time uh, mint uh, um, specialist, weed scientist here in our department. And uh, he wanted to take a sabbatical. So that was my intro to mint production. And uh, I have to say, it's it's been a good time. Uh, although the, the industry is not so uh, um, healthy at this point, I would think, um, if you look at the acres and so on. But I think Doug will explain a lot of that uh, as we go along. Uh, what I am currently focusing on is uh, verisilium wolf management. Um, I'm not a plant pathologist. But from an agronomic point of view, Verisilium wolf is a, a big deal to mint growers. Uh, mint growers constantly have to look for a new ground um, because this uh, fungal disease can stay in the ground for a very long time. Um, if you take a, a many years ago and uh, look at how mint was produced, uh, you could at least get four to five years out of a specific planting that you made. And uh, now in many instances, that's uh, been cut down to uh, three years and maybe four if you are lucky. So obviously that has economic implications to the grower. So this uh, fungal disease that's uh, caused by Verisilium deliae, and it is really a soil-borne pathogen or fungal pathogen, um, is very detrimental and it reduces the, the growth and uh, the potential of the crop over time as it uh, settles in the crop. So most growers, uh, will either apply a chemical fumigant 
um, or they will look for new ground if the ground is exhausted and infected with the, uh, the fungal disease. Um, so while the industry research council is looking at uh, potential breeding options uh, to get a, a resistant variety out there, uh, which is really a very long shot, and maybe Doug can also uh, talk a little bit more about that. It's a really a long shot because mint doesn't produce uh, pollen or seeds, so it's really hard to do anything. And if you really want to get quickly to a new variety, you probably have to intervene with uh, some uh, genetic uh, processes that uh, is not always favorable from the consumer point of view. Um, so we choose to look at biological approaches and uh, we wanted to focus on biological uh, fumigation. And anaerobic soil disinfestation is one of those uh, techniques that's been used very successfully in strawberry production and some other crops um, to control verisilum uh, dahlia. So really with this process, you look at uh, um, a label uh, carbon uh, soil amendment that you will apply. You will saturate the soil water, you will tarp it with plastic, um, and uh, you will leave it like that for about four weeks. And you usually do that process during the hottest time of the summer. Um, so there are some benefits uh, of doing that. Um, and really in our instance, we were focusing on uh, using local sources to cut down on costs and those kind of things. Um, and uh, yeah, it has an impact on the, the good microbes in the ground and a negative impact on the, um, the ones that we do uh, want to get rid of. Um, we've been monitoring several things uh, associated with this and Dr. Laurie Hoagland is really taking the lead on all the so soil microbial activity work. Um, that is related to uh, this research. Um, we are coming to the end of our project, actually, and uh, it's funded by SARE, the North Central SARE uh, USDA. Um, so it was a great opportunity for us to, to do some work uh, for the growers here in Indiana, but also in the Midwest that uh, is affected by Bertisim uh, work. Awesome. Thanks for that background, Patrick. Stephen, would you like to go next? Yeah, thanks, Jordan. So, uh, yes, Stephen Myers, I am a weed scientist and have been working uh, really in peppermint since I've been back at Purdue um, 2019. And we basically, most of our research program right now is focused on chemical-based weed management. So uh, trying to establish crop tolerance to various herbicides by rate and application method, uh, both in the field and in the greenhouse with the and goal of having more chemical herbicides uh, registered for our growers to use to, to mitigate the effects of weeds, basically. And so that's it. That's my introduction. Awesome. Thanks, Stephen. Um, Elizabeth, do you want to go next? Sure. Um, so I'm Elizabeth Long. I'm a, a specialty crop entomologist at Purdue. And I also started working on mint in 2019 and really it's such an amazing crop. It's new to me. I, I think it's just amazing. I, I can't get enough, um, even though maybe everyone else has been working in it, particularly the growers are like, oh, it's old news to us now. But it's such a neat, um, interesting crop. Just putting that in there. Um, but all of my my knowledge and really experience uh, working in the crop so far has been revolved around this white grub um, called the Asiatic garden beetle. This is an invasive 
species. It's been around in a lot of other crops. It's very polyphagous. So it's, it's kind of like the Japanese beetle in that they'll eat lots of different things. Um, but there are some key differences uh, that I won't go into, I guess, because I'm already starting to nerd out. But the grubs, the big challenge in the mint is they're they're there now. Like so here in Indiana, about 2014 or 15, the growers started seeing damage. Um, and they dig into the soil and find these white grubs. And so all of our effort has been focused on, first of all, confirming this is the species, which we know it is, because there are other white grub species that are in the soil feeding on the roots of mint. And also trying to look at the relationship between the density of these grubs and then plant performance. So we can get an idea of an economic threshold um, for growers. So if they come out there and they count so many grubs per square foot um, or something like that, then they know I need to do something. And in terms of what that something is, that's kind of a whole nother thing because <laughs> they're um, getting these grubs in the soil with insecticides is pretty challenging. Um, but we have seen some promise with a couple of um, Diamides, well, I should say one diamide that we've tested in the lab, and we're also evaluating some insect parasitic nematodes, which are naturally occurring enemies of these white grubs. So that's kind of what's happening, what can we do, and the, the, I think the key thing right now is finding a threshold for growers and then hopefully continuing to get funding to answer the question of what kind of approach is going to work as part of an integrated strategy short term, maybe relying on insecticides and long term, relying on communities of these insect parasitic nematodes. Awesome. That is very interesting. They have a lot of soil-based knowledge here today, which is great. Doug, would you like to go next? Sure. Uh, yeah, thank you for allowing me to join here. Um, yeah, I guess I'd be fourth-generation mint farmer here in South Bend, Indiana, uh, when my great-grandpa originally purchased the original farm back in the 1930s. At that point, there was uh, mint being grown in the area. And so we've, we've sort of always had it as a uh, specialty crop rotation, um, kind of keeping us a little bit diversified uh, versus just corn and beans. Um, so yeah, uh, fourth generation, uh, I've kind of taken over all sort of management, um, production side, uh, financial side of everything. Um, we're... We, we've been up to about 2,200 acres, and right now we're just a little under 1,000. Um, we'll probably get into why that is, but um, yeah, we're, we're uh, multi-generational um, family up here that's just kind of been growing mint, and that's what we've always done, and, 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 and proud to do it. Awesome. Well, we appreciate you being here, Doug. It's always nice to have the grower's perspective, um, especially in a room full of researchers. Would either or any of you like to provide any sort of background or overview on how mint is typically produced in the Midwest? I, I can be happy to take that question. Um, so here in the Midwest, uh, I, it, it, you know, the long history of it, it, it originated out of New York and it just sort of worked its way west as the country grown. And where we're at, um, at one point in time, there was one of the largest marsh areas in the world in the Kankakee River. And when they dredged that and drained it, it left this black, beautiful, highly organic soil um, that just meant, particularly peppermint, really thrived on. And so I, I believe that's kind of the origins of, of how mint got started in the Midwest. And in Wisconsin area, that would be the other kind of growing state 
they also have these lower areas where rivers have come through and marsh areas. Um, and then you, you couple with the fact that, you know, when the production started happening, uh, a company like Wrigley, uh, a company like Procter Gamble, Colgate, those are probably three of the biggest ones that, uh, you know, bought mint oil, obviously based in Chicago, Cincinnati, and then there in New Jersey, respectfully you know, it was easy then to grow the mint in that area and get it shipped to where it needed to get into the final products. Um, so that's kind of how mint production sort of started here, I believe, in the Midwest. Uh, just as it as it migrated, you know, just these these farmers found good good soil to do it on and uh, there was a market for the product and it just it just sort of flourished from there. So Jordan, that's something we, we've kind of talked around, but I don't know that we've said explicitly the end product here is, is mint oil. So, um, so yeah, it's not, you know, they're not marketing leaves or anything. It's, you know, it goes through a distillation process and they're, they have barrels of, of oil and that's, that's the end product that the, the growers selling. Okay. Thank you for that. Uh, so I read that mint is um, a water lover in Indiana. Is it irrigated do you get enough rain in that area yeah so typically where it was growing in these muck soils that that was sort of river bottom as it is and so it was uh areas that typically were wet and unless you had a really droughty year um it it, it stayed wet and so that's why i believe the peppermint plant probably enjoyed growing in these regions was just there was highly organic soil and it it stayed moist obviously with the advent of um and the investment in irrigation then guys started growing it on sandier soils um and and you know being able to you know produce that crop via irrigation i, I would say that probably 90 90 percent of the crop that we have grown mint wise over the course of shaling farms growing it has either fallen in those two categories very rarely do we put it on um, ground that is non-irrigated that would be susceptible to drought just just simply because the cost of producing it is you know you'd, you'd be running a pretty big risk of it so um when when you hear that that mint is is water loving it's like i said it's it's because it was one it's growing in ground that used to be marsh so uh you know it, it typically just kind of stays wet awesome thanks so i've heard most of you mentioned peppermint is there a big difference in production between peppermint and spearmint or would anybody like to touch on kind of the different varieties that there are between the two? I could take that one again, I guess, since I was asked about the production side of stuff. Um, yeah, on the peppermint side of it, most of it is a uh, variety called black Mitchum. That's, that's traditionally what's been grown here in the U S and then on the, on the spearmint side, um, there's two varieties. There's what's called a native uh, spearmint and then there's also a scotch spearmint um, the scotch spearmint seems to be a little bit more valuable market-wise uh, than what the, the native is um, but and the, and the researchers they they can touch on a little bit too but a lot of this has uh, it, it's it's traditionally non-gmo um, it's just plants come from a, a, a mother bed greenhouse and we we transplanted into what we consider to be sterile, healthy soil. Um, plants grow out, they, they shoot out roots. We, we, we dig those roots up out of the ground then we transplant an acre. You know, we, we take a hundred thousand plants, plant them into an acre, an acre turns to 10, 10 turns to hundred and so on and so forth. Um, so that, that's kind of how 
the three varieties get going um, and then how you sort of propagate it out to get it to a commercial commercial side of things. Okay. Um, for the researchers, is there a preference between the two that you're looking at? Are you looking at both peppermint and spearmint? Just one or the other? Yeah, so I can take a, a stab at that. This is Steve, uh, a weed scientist. Um, so most of the work that we do is done in coordination with other mint growing states and researchers at uh, other universities in those mint growing states. So um, the work that we do is usually funded through the Mint Industry Research Council or the MIRC um, as a multi-state collaboration. So the idea being basically we're looking at treatments across all the, all the different kinds of mints and all the different stages of, of the crop. So um, row mint versus um, a more established mint field. So um, most of my work has been in peppermint um, because we, you know, the, the Pacific Northwest folks usually have the, the spearmint side taken care of as far as the, the treatments go. Yeah, my work also focused more on the peppermint since uh, black Mitchum is highly susceptible to Bersillium gold. So that, that's the right that we really uh, focus on. I would say we're working mainly in peppermint fields, but we're working with growers who do have some spearmint fields. So we're trying to make sure, I mean, I suspect damage by this, we're seeing that damage is similar because um, they're grown very similarly and have similar structures. But I would say just because of the acreage, we're doing a little bit more in peppermint, but certainly working in spearmint too. And, and I, I guess I would just like to add that um, your, your weed management and your pest management you know, that, that goes across the board for, for all varieties of mint. Um, but I think there's probably a lot of interest and there has been a lot of interest in, in the peppermint side of it, as, as uh, Beatrice has, has mentioned about this verticillium wilt, will, which just can absolutely devastate a crop. And so that's kind of always been one of the uh, ending goals of the MRIC that, that Dr. Myers suggested or talked about was trying to find a way to combat this verticillium wilt um, so that peppermint production, you know, can stay at, at, you know, good, good production levels. So, and then at the end of it, you know, people that come out to the mint still and, and, and anybody that sort of knows mint or, or likes mint things, that peppermint smell, that peppermint flavor is your, your um, traditional, I guess when, when you think of mint and you think of what it smells like, you're, you're probably going to identify more with peppermint. So, you know, that, that's probably just a, a preference with things too. Yeah. So Dougie brought up pest management. I think that's a great topic for us to touch on today. We're talking about verticillium wilt. Petrus, would you want to dive a little bit deeper into your work with verticillium wilt? Yes. So <clears throat> we uh, apply for a grant. Uh, from the North Central Sierra uh, group, and uh, that was uh, 2018. So we started the research in 2019, and then, um, yeah, we were all excited, and then COVID happened, and uh, we were put back a, a year <laughs> with, uh, with the work that we were uh, going to do. Um, but yeah, it, it's always a challenge uh, working out uh, in fields, uh, multiple fields. We really wanted to to look at uh, different things that are cost effective for the grower to, to have on his farm. The, the problem that we see with the approach that we have, uh, 
with the ASD technique, the anaerobic anaerobic soil disinfestation technique, is that uh, there's a tarp involved. So that component of the application of the technique is not really sustainable. And you're going to have to have a whole bunch of tarp uh, to cover an area which is not really uh, feasible if you think about a thousand acres or more uh, per farm. It is a fumigation uh, plastic, so it's used for large-scale fumigation. Um, and you can put it down with a tractor if you have the right implements. Um, we didn't, uh, so we used uh, um, shovels to dig a ditch around the plants. Uh, before we tarp the, the, the treatment, we would soak it, so saturate it with water. Um, put the top on and then just put soil on the sides uh, to seal it up. But basically it's a clear top. So you get the, the light to, to penetrate uh, and all that energy to be locked in um, under that plastic. So in the end, I think the technology would really work well in a nursery setup. Like Doug uh, explained, you know, you start with clean material and you build it out slowly. So uh, maybe on a smaller scale, it might be viable. One of the, the um, treatments that we included was um, uh, mustard, um, a variety uh, called Caliente 199. Uh, it produces a lot of glucosinolates. And uh, with that, there's known research out there already that there is a biofumigation uh, effect from this uh, crop. If you, you shred it, you basically flail mow it, and uh, you should have it in the ground within about 20 minutes to make use of all that gas and uh, that's released from the plant material. And then you get the, the fumigation effect. So most of that in the commercial setup is uh, done without tarping. So in our research, we wanted to see what uh, an, a tarp, uh, an additional tarping effect will be. Other treatments that we looked at uh, was chicken litter. We have a lot of chicken a little in the state, um, uh, something like uh, dried asparagus grain, uh, and we also wanted to include uh, soybean meal. And then, just as an additional control, we wanted to do just a normal solarization without any addition of uh, any label uh, carbon source, <clears throat> just using the heat to uh, see what the effect on that is. So yeah, the, it comes down to a lot of material that needs to be applied. So the calculations that we made, uh, it was almost uh, 9.6 to 10 tons per acre of a label carbon source that needed to be added. So uh, in the end, obviously, all these numbers can have an impact on the bottom line if you uh, produce them. Um, and our study is not really long enough to look at the, the complete effect on the cycle of production. Uh, we only had one year, so we really planted mint. Uh, we grew it for one year. We harvested it. Um, ideally, we would have uh, continued with it for a second, third, and fourth year to see what really happens with the mint in the field. But we just don't have the time, uh, the luxury of time within this project to do that. And if we could have done that, we really could have looked at the entire uh, um, economic cycle and what the real bottom line and benefit for the grower uh, would be. But there were some interesting uh, results that we found on the, the yield side. So, for instance, some of our uh, treatments, if you added mustard with a tarp, 
uh, we had, for instance, a very low yield. So the plants were shorter, uh, low hay yield. Um, so if you compare that with the chicken litter treatment, obviously there's a lot more nutrients locked up in the chicken litter. We had a lot of biomass being produced. The mint was tall. Uh, we had a lot of stem, but little leaf. So and obviously all the oils are locked up in the, the leaves of the, the plant. So um, we had high hay yields uh, with chicken litter, but we had low or the lowest oil yield. And the mustard treatments gave us the highest oil yield although they had the lowest uh, biomass um, produced from those plots. Um, so that was uh, pretty interesting, but not completely uncommon. We've seen that in the past that um, high hay yields doesn't really reflect in the oil uh, in the end most of the time. Um, if you can retain the leaf on the stem, that's when you really get the, the oil in the, in, the, in the tank in the end. Um, in terms of microbial activity, I don't really want to talk a lot about that since that's not really my uh, field of expertise, but it seemed like there was uh, a bit of uh, a positive e impact on microbial activity in the ground when it uh, came to the soybean meal that we applied. Um, they're still working through the data and we haven't uh, uh, gotten a final answer as to what really worked well in that sense. Um, part of the study is going to look a little bit at the, um, the cost of all these uh, treatments and we've surveyed some growers mm -hmm. to find out what they are currently doing. So we want to see what this uh, intervention maybe could change on the farm and if it is actually a positive thing in terms of uh, the bottom line, just from a one year perspective. Um, but yeah, that... That would be interesting. I, I think, and, and Doc can maybe talk to this too, uh, from an agronomic perspective, mint is a, a really great crop to include in your rotation when you grow beans and, and corn. Uh, it gives you time to manage other things um, like the weeds, Stephen does. Um, and fertility-wise, mint also requires quite a bit of uh, fertility. I'm curious as to, do you think there's any correlation between the age of the stand um, and the potential damage that verticillium wilt has? I mean, sure. Uh, I don't have data uh, for that, but I think uh, Doug can attest to that. So the longer your mint stand is in the field, the more you see um, um, verticillium wilt uh, patches appear in the field. And, it will get bigger over time. So the mint production in terms of biomass really goes down over uh, a number of years. And it just really depends on how infected the soil is um, in terms of how long you can produce in that soil. Doug, maybe you want to comment on that. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so one of the things that's happening here in the Midwest is guys that have been growing it and and with university research out there with it, you know, ultimately right now, the best tool you have to control verticillium wilt is to move peppermint production to virgin ground. And unfortunately, when you say take a 60 year time frame, there's only so much ground available as you're getting to this point. And I think what's happening for a lot of growers is, uh, and it's happening in our farm, we we can have a mint field that was peppermint 30 years ago. We'll let it grow maybe a four-year four year stand, comes out. We could go 10 years where we don't put peppermint back in. 
come back in and maybe now that peppermint goes three years because that verticillin wilt, if it was heavily infected in the soil, it, it just cuts that, that cycle down again. And so growers really are sort of at this crossroads where they've sort of minted out a lot of the ground that was very productive. And with the commodity markets being higher in corn and soybeans, you know, you just, you just don't want to take the risk of, of, of putting out mints with the high cost of production in the ground that's maybe on its fourth year, fourth rotation of it, knowing that there's a verticillium wilt problem there. Um, and so your other option, and, and Beatrice has mentioned it, is to go through and fumigate the soil. Uh, that's an option. We've done that. That's also a high cost, looking at $350, $400 an acre. Uh, of course, you can, you know, spread that out over the course of three years. Um, but even then, by that, if you don't get a good seal, um, even by that third year, you can just see, you can just see that verticillium wilt just just taking that plant down, and it just attacks the plant. It shuts down its ability to produce oil, and it just looks sick and unhealthy. And you know, you could lose easily a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars an acre in profit. If, if, if you're not aware of it and allow this stuff to, to come in. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's nasty, uh, you know, and, and there's been a lot of research done on it. I mean, uh, one of the colleagues down at Purdue, Dr. Ralph Green is basically dedicated his entire life to trying to figure out verticillium wilt. And, uh, it's, it's just, it's just really a, a tough, tough case to solve. So I'm not super well-versed on fumigation. Um, is, Fumigation for mint, if it's is it specific to verticillium wilt, or is it also for other pests, diseases? Um, um, I'll kind of answer what we did, and then maybe maybe some of the uh, Purdue uh, professors there can the researchers can jump in. And what we did, and we went out to Idaho where they were growing potatoes and sugar beets, and watched kind of what they did because they they put this stuff on about every acre in order to keep their production up out there. When we did it, what we found was it basically allowed us to clear the soil slate, if you will, and kind of put it back to sort of a clean slate in terms of weed management and verticillium wilt. Um, and I, I, I guess I, I didn't really see much on the insect side of stuff, but it, it gave us about a two, two and a half year window, if you will, where we just didn't see a lot of weed pressure, a lot of this verticillium wilt. So you go in, you, you knife it into the ground, uh, you try to get the soil covered over it, you, you get it down there maybe a foot, you know, 15 inches, and then it just gasses itself up through the soil there, that, that top layer, and that's sort of what just sort of um, fumigates and just sort of wipes out everything that's sitting there. Um, and, and we've done it, like I said, we've done it once or twice. Uh, we, we've kind of had good results. Um, but just a little bit time consuming because you got to you got to have like a 120 day window to allow it to work. Um, so you can't be, you know, really putting it on in the, the spring if you're planning on planting. Um, so it just becomes a management time issue, you know, trying to get it on there. And then, of course, the cost. So I think to some of the points that Doug made there, um, that's what really inspired us to uh, to do this work. So the, the cost of the chemical fumigant is pretty high. The uh, efficacy is, is not that great. Uh, you do get some reprieve from applying it, 
But then again, you can also negatively affect um, soil microbial life, um, good microbes in the soil. So in, in effect, you can worsen the situation as time goes on if you fumigate uh, too much. And I think that's why we really wanted to look at the, the more um, biological approach to to the management while the Mint Industry Research Council is trying to sort out um, you know, the genetic side of things, which might take a, a very long time. Uh, so we talked about disease management and fumigation. Um, are there really high input costs for weed and insect management on mint? I can tell you a little bit about the um, kind of the, the novelty of mint is that it is one of these short-term perennial crops. So that being said, we have to concern ourselves with a lot of different types of weeds. You know, if you're growing a warm season vegetable crop, you're mostly concerned with summer annuals, right? But in, in mint, we also have to concern ourselves with, with uh, winter annual weeds as well that germinate this time of year and are going to be present when the mint breaks dormancy next spring. So it's just, it's, it's just kind of, being mindful of managing that system year round. Um, and I imagine the same is, is, is true for insects, just being mindful that you, you've got to stay on top of your pest continuously for a, a matter of years instead of just months and then walk away from it. So I think that's kind of the novelty of, of this production system. Well, I'm interested to hear what Doug says. I, I've only worked with a few growers directly. Um, there are certainly some insects that are problematic in our region that aren't other places. So like more the, the Pacific Northwest, even Wisconsin. So like one example I can think of is the mint root borer. Um, I don't know that it, I haven't heard from anyone in Indiana um, that it's a big problem, but I know it's more of a problem in Wisconsin. And I say that loosely, I don't know how much damage, but it's something I hear on the radar that people that I've worked with uh, mint growers here haven't mentioned, but I would, um, I'm so focused on this one particular insect and in, in working in the mint system. So I can't really speak to, to what, Others like maybe Doug can speak to that, what you've seen during the season. And I suspect knowing the phenology of some of these insects and, you know, when they're going to show up, then you can hopefully time your applications at, at the right time and knock them out. Yeah, I guess uh, on, on our end, um, you know, one of the, the, the challenges and struggles is, is as, as the, the mint industry seems to be sort of... Um, shrinking there there seems to be less and less growth there are less and less growers than what there was 10 years ago then obviously there's going to be less and less of a need and demand for new newer chemicals newer pesticides to get registered for for mint crop um and i know that that's one of the things the mric has always done is is work to get you know mint labeled for things um in terms of the, the weed and the pest management, you know, we've always felt, and I guess it's been ingrained in me, that the easiest way to manage these things is to grow a healthy crop. So by going through and making sure you're, you're, you're providing that plant with what it needs, uh, when it needs it, and then, you know, making sure you get good foliar coverage and, and just allowing the plant to control weeds in, in places, you know, that, that, that tends to be the easiest route to it. And it's no secret probably in the mint growers that, 
as you as you cut corners on things or you're delayed on getting a a particular um, chemical or pesticide out there, you know your your mint becomes less healthy. The weeds then take over, pests take over, and then you're just kind of playing catch up. So uh, I guess my dad has always prided himself on making sure that anybody that ever came to our farm goes to any one of our fields and just sees an absolutely beautiful field of mint. Uh, the next part, I guess I, I and it's a perception and, and, and again, the Purdue researchers can kind of maybe talk to it, but it also seems like the weather and winter um, has a lot to do with these things. And unfortunately that's just a lot of stuff that uh, nobody can really control, but you know, a harder, colder, breeze of a winter seems to bring on less things you know hot humid uh you know summers just moisture out there just breed stuff so you know you, you got to take in all that consideration and, and our our fellow growers out there in the far west one of the things that they have the advantage of is that they know it's going to be sunny in 85 and low humidity all day long and they're not having to worry about water and rain they get it from the canals uh, you know, we, we get this 20% chance of, uh, of rain on an 85% humidity day. And of course, lo and behold, it, it drops an inch and a half of rain in 20 minutes right on your field. And so, you know, you just, you have all these different management issues. So um, we, we've been pretty fortunate that we just make sure we understand that we're investing a lot into this crop. We take pride in what we do and that you just have to get out there at the right time and, and make it a priority to keep on top of this stuff. And if you're able to do that, you usually have a pretty good results in your mint, mint yields. I'll just second what Doug said. What we've seen in, in our some of our weed control studies is that if you have a healthy mint crop, they can it can quickly outgrow a lot of the winter annual weeds that are problematic or that are present in the field and, and kind of over canopy and crowd them out. And so that's that's definitely really key and I, I guess I'd like to add to that too. Just one simple thing we do: uh, we just take an air hose to our our machines before they go from a weedy field to a non-weedy field and blow them off to make sure we're not carrying weed seed over. And you know, it's it's a five-minute simple fix. But as long as you are letting all the operators know that that's what needs to happen before we go from field to field, um, you know that that cuts down on a lot of issues right there. So. You know, we, we talk about a lot of research and expensive chemicals and pesticides, but sometimes it's just that $5 simple five minute answer that, that goes a long way too. So, uh, you know, and that just, that's just being on top of those things and making sure everybody knows that you have to do that and why you have to do that and, and what, what the advantages of it is. Are you finding any herbicide resistant weeds in your mint fields? Yeah, so the, the weed, weedscience.org um, is a website that tracks known documented herbicide resistance incidents worldwide. And if you if you search mint, you'll find documentation of group five and six uh, herbicide resistance. So those would be the photosystem two inhibitors um, where there have been weeds in mint fields that have been resistant to those groups of herbicides. So um, unfortunately, one of those is this Turbacil, which is Sinbar, which um, which is a very effective herbicide that's used in mint. Um, so you know, one of the things that we we want growers to be mindful of is to just be aware if, if herbicides aren't controlling weeds as effectively as they used to, 
that there may be resistance and that may be something we want to get ahead of. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that mint is rotated with other row crops. So if you have herbicide resistant weeds, especially the pig weeds in your corn and beans, those aren't going anywhere. They're, <laughs> they're going to still be resistant to the same types of herbicides when they're in your peppermint or your spearmint. So. And I guess, I guess just to add on that again, one of the things that will happen then at harvest is if you have a field that's infested with, say, pigweed or dogbane, milkweed, that opens the door then for your oil to sort of have a weedy note. Um, you know, these particular plants have, have oil residue on the backside. So as you're using steam distillation to try to get out mineral, you're also distilling out other things that can contaminate your oil. And then that that just sort of opens your door up then for the people who buy it to say, well, you know, we, we can't really accept this barrel because it doesn't meet, you know, doesn't meet a certain scent or, you know, oil quality. Um, and then the adage there from the grower side of it is right now there's less demand for the oil. There's plenty of oil on the market. And so they can kind of be picky and choosy about what barrels they want. When uh, they needed oil, when oil was in short supply, they would take anything they got, no matter what it was. So, you know, once again, you're, if you, if you want to continue to be relevant in the mint production side of it, you you got to make sure you're, you're you're delivering good quality oil, and uh, definitely keeping these weeds out of out of your fields uh, just just helps you in the long run. Yeah, yeah, that's a, yeah, I, I might be talking over you, Doug, but anytime a herbicide or a pesticide in general is registered in a crop, we want to document, and it has to document that there's one crop safety uh, efficacy against the pest in question, so it does actually control weeds in that system. And then two, uh, or, or sorry, the third factor is that residue in the crop, and so that's established by EPA. They have allowances for various pesticides in the raw agricultural commodity, but also things like meat. So um, Doug can talk about this, but from what I understand is that the buyers will look for you know, residue of pesticides that may have been applied uh, off-label. Yeah, Stephen, that's that's absolutely correct. In fact, we uh, are working on sending samples out to some of these buyers, and then they've got to go to a third party um, to basically verify for no pesticide traces. And that that has been a shift here probably in the last five years and my understanding of it is is that if these buyers of the oil want to tap into say the european market they need to be able to meet pretty high stringent standards what's interesting from our standpoint as a grower the company would not accept the barrel of oil if it was tainted or of low quality in any way but yet the idea of traceability, sustainability, all the way back to where that commodity was produced, that's kind of been a, a hot topic or, or just sort of a push for end users to be able to say consumers, you know, that, that this, this is an all natural product or we can show you where this product came from or, or what have you. Um, and of course, what, what, what's interesting in, in all of that is you know, the, the buyers is sort of the stop point for us. Like I said, that barrel of oil would never get into the system if, you know, if, if there was something wrong with it. So, but most growers, in fact, all growers, they, they follow the, the, the pesticide labels and there's a pre-harvest interval and, 
and and then it's steam distillation so you're running 200 degree temperature up through a, a thing and you're you're basically scaling off a lot of what's ever in that 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 wagon at that point in time and so unless somehow it gets contaminated from when you distill it to put it in the barrel um you know most of the time it, it's, it's pretty good quality oil so yeah and what what doug touched on as far as export that that goes across a lot of different crops um you know it's there's not a really good harmonized standard for how much pesticide residue can be in a commodity so epa may say one thing domestically uh, when you try to send it to the European Union, you know they it may exceed their threshold, right? So, um, so that's not specific to mint, but I know a lot of our other horticulture crop, uh, you know, growers they they deal with that as well, right? And it's it's just one of those things to to be aware of. So we kind of started talking about the distillation process. Do you distill it yourself, Doug, or do you send it out to get distilled by somebody else? Um, no, we, we, we run everything, every acre through our own, our own uh, minsto we have on, on farm, on location. Um, that's how most guys do it. I know out in the far West and, and it's starting to come where if you only have a couple hundred acres of mint, you know, maybe you, you allow somebody else to custom harvest for you, custom harvest it for you. But, uh, no, everything happens on our, on our facility. Um, and, and again, you know, you're, you're looking at water quality is, is probably, you know something that could contaminate your your steam distillation, but we're we're pretty fortunate here to have to have good good quality water. Um, that that's not really an issue for us. But yeah, just I guess a little bit of background. The plant grows, uh, comes out of dormancy in the spring. Um, around here, we usually shoot for around July fourth. It's about a sixty day time period. Uh, that plant starts to grow. It it creates a flower up on top. It begins to bud at that point. That indicates that the plant is kind of coming to the end of its life cycle. It's starting to set oil on. We'll go through, we'll mow it with a sickle bar. Uh, if you kind of think hay into a windrow, we allow the sun, wind to dry it out for 36 hours, 36 a day, 36 hours. Um, that just tries to take some of the moisture out of the plant. Uh, then we then bring it back in large tubs that we run steam lines in the bottom. Steam comes up through the wagon. It vaporizes the oil. The vapor then goes into a condensing tank where that vapor is cooled back down into a liquid. Oil and water separate, oil floats to the top. We run it into a collection tank and then we put it into a barrel. And then that's what gets shipped off to um, to the uh, ultimately to the end users then. So. Well, thank you for that background. It's helpful to kind of know how that process works. Uh, we're kind of rounding out our time here. So just a couple of last minute questions. Where do you see the mint research going in the future? Uh, maybe I can uh, answer some of that. I honestly don't know. The Like Doug said, the mint industry is in decline and uh, there is not a lot of funding available for uh, for mint, uh, for instance, when I applied for this grant, uh, the North Central Sea region didn't even know we grew mint here in the Midwest. So it's almost like this crop that's hiding in between us, you know. Yeah. So I don't know, uh, you know, how we can uh, put more emphasis on the importance of this uh, crop. Um, I think it is important. It's uh, it's very interesting. It, it is. Uh, it was at some point the largest specialty crop in Indiana. I don't know if it is still um, at five thousand uh, odd acres. 
uh, we are the largest in the Midwest. So, yeah, I I think the importance of the crop is there. Um, it's just a matter of getting the the resources to uh, to do the work. And and just I guess from a, a grower's standpoint, um, yeah, there there are less and less of us growing. Um, that that's probably a trend that's true. Um, among American farmers. I mean, my dad is 68 years old. I'm 42. Uh, if, if there's 150 growers right now in the US, I, I, I probably am one of the youngest. Um, and, you know, I, I don't mind doing what I do. I, I really enjoy the mint side of it. Um, I, I know there are probably people in my generation that don't want to be out in the middle of July dealing with steam when it's 95 degrees and hot and you know uh i always joke that we're just we we, we run a mince though in the summer because we're too dumb to own a lake house so um but the other the other part or the other equation to this is as as uh steven pointed out we are producing essential oil that that does go basically into flavoring of products you're talking toothpaste chewing gum uh confectionaries that's probably the largest side of it uh, there's some different trends i mean obviously you know Back in the day, you could go into a gas station and buy a pack of double mint gum for 25 cents. And you did that because you had to go inside and pay for gas. Now, you know, everything is self-checkout. It's it's right at the pump. Um, you know, you, you go brush your, your teeth. Uh, the Mint Industry Research Council, these end users have found out that the average American brushes their teeth 1.2 times a day. So it's not even it's not even two times a day. Um, and, and everybody that comes and says, oh, well, I, I'll think of you when I brush my teeth. And I'm like, yeah, you will tonight and tomorrow. But a week from now, you're going to brush your teeth because you know it's a health benefit, not because you want to support the mint farmer. And I, I think another part to this is, is that, you know, maybe 20, 30 years ago, there was sort of a personal connection between the people who procured oil for the end users coming out to the farms, meeting the farmers, they knew each other, they, they understood what was going on. Um, my, my general thought is, you know, that job now is sort of a stepping stone to something higher in a multinational, multi-billion dollar corporation. And who really, you know, wants to stick around trying to buy min oil for 10 years. Uh, it's just not, you know, it, you just go to someplace else. And then, the, the 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 big elephant in the room is there, there's a lot of foreign oil that's getting blended off um growers have kind of talked about if you really wanted to make an issue out of it that you you probably could put forth some sort of um complaint against with the u.s department of commerce that what being certified and the certificate of authenticity of being 100 percent u.s oil in fact is not that and that it, it but, you know, it, it all meets a price point that goes into something else. And until the consumer starts to say, hey, I want this to be 100% natural U.S. based oil, um, it's, it's, it's just kind of how it's going to be. And I just don't see the consumer doing that because mint oil flavoring and, and what you're doing is such a small, minute, you know, amount. And yeah, it's just kind of really flies under the radar. Uh, like I said, if it was an apple or if it was a glass of orange juice or if it was milk, you know, people are consuming that whole product. But when you're talking about mineral, you just need just a, a drop of it in order to do whatever you needed to do. So, you know, just to give reference to your listeners, 
a 400 pound barrel of oil can flavor, they say 1.2 million sticks of gum. And, and we, we produced um, probably close to 200 barrels of oil this year. So, you know, when we're one grower, we're small. So yeah, it's a unique, unique place. And, and because of all that, you know, less growers, less, less money being directed at MRIC and users, not maybe necessarily knowing that they're getting their oil and they're, they're fulfilling their needs by it being blended just sort of creates this need where it's like, well, do we really need to keep hammering down on how to take care of weeds and, and beetles and the mint? And it's, it's just sort of, we're, we're at a, we're at an inflection point in the industry. The old timers will tell you, we've been here before we pulled out of it. I, you know, I, I, I don't know. It, this just kind of seems a little different this time than in the past, but you know, I guess time will tell. And, and ultimately uh, at our, our office, and when we talk about it at the end of the day, we're all mint farmers, but we, we better be doing it better than the next guy and, and take pride in that. So, you know, that, that's just sort of the, Unfortunately, the game you kind of have to play if you want to stay relevant in the mint industry these these days. So kind of on that note, my last question is for everybody. If you want to chime in, great. If you don't have anything, you don't have to chime in. Um, could there be any untapped uses for mint? Well, uh, I, I know... I know the MRIC, I believe they're uh, funding a project there, what is like West Virginia Wesleyan, where a, a gentleman's looking at, uh, you know, min oil just in terms of, in, in classrooms, just sort of, uh, you know, awaking the senses if you get better results, if you're more aware. Uh, I know we've been approached, um, you know, at, at the end of it, peppermint is, has antimicrobial properties to it, antioxidant properties to it. It, it is a pretty healthy, product to have out there but again you just have to use such a small minute amount of it in order to get the benefits of it and and then there's this whole marketing point to it too you know a lot of the essential oil market is you know people think of doTERRA young living um is that coming straight out of our mint still into a bottle Pro probably not you know but the price point of that is higher than what we sell for a pound for and they sell for half ounce and they labeled as therapeutic grade oil. What does that mean? Nothing. It's a marketing scheme. It's a marketing tool, you know, and the American consumer just, they, they, they care, but then like I said, it's, it's just, it's min oil, you know, like, it's just, like you said, there's not, there's not a lot other uses for other than what it is. And um, yeah, just a quick antidote. My wife and I thought, well, we could do better than Notera. We'll sit at our kitchen table and we'll start filling up these half ounce bottles and we'll sell them on farmers markets. And you, you did this, and you're like, all we have to sell is peppermint spearmint oil. You know, like what what kind of merchant are we? And and we we were able to do enough to cover costs, but you know, um, yeah, it just a little bit goes such a long way. So. Uh, and, and the American mint farmer, if you give them the opportunity to produce the crop, they're going to do it. And, and I think that's been part of the problem, too, is research probably has gotten us to where we, we can grow more pounds on less acres and then less demand. And, and then there you are. So I will say, if you ever get back into the COVID world and you got to wear these masks all the time, just take a drop of spearmint or peppermint oil and that'll freshen your mask up and it'll make your day go a lot better. So. Awesome. Well, thank you all for being here. Uh, really appreciated talking to all of you um, and participating in this episode of the Cutting Edge Podcast. Thank you.
Just one final note here before we sign off. If you have any ideas for show topics or just general feedback on the episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at cuttingedge at extension.wisc.edu. That's cuttingedge at extension.wisc.edu. Thanks again. Brought to you by the University of Wisconsin-Madison Division of Extension.